Welcome to the Resume Storyteller, bringing you interviews with industry experts, regular folks who tested the job search waters and succeeded, and strategies to tell your story and land you job interviews. Here's your host, Virginia Franco. I am so excited to have with me today, Chris Delaney. He is an interview coach, a hypnotist, and a published author. As a dyslexic with a terrible lisp when in high school, Chris speaks from experience when it comes to overcoming personal barriers. Today is the founder of Employment King, a certified NLP life coach, a hypnotherapist, and a career advisor. He brings to the table 15 plus years of experience supporting people to achieve their life and career goals. Chris believes that passion and luck create success. And in his new book, What is Your Interview Identity? Chris has developed an interview prediction grid model to help career professionals succeed in job interviews. Um, Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thank you very much. I didn't realize how much I've achieved in my in my 40 years <laughs> on this earth. That was a, a great <laughs> intro. <laughs> it's like, well, it's all you. I didn't make any of that up. So... <laughs> <laughs> so it's really funny though, isn't it? Hearing like your past successes and you know, <laughs> so, someone explaining what you've done is uh, it's, it's great. I feel I feel really good now. <laughs> Very good. So thank you so much for joining me. I'm in the US, you're in the UK. Um, I'd love for you to give us a quick overview of what you do day in and day out and how you came to be in this position and, and write this book. So I basically help anxious career professionals pass the job interview. Because we've all been there, haven't we, where, you know, we're very successful in our career. We're getting promotion after promotion. Uh, but we're trying, to want to get, we're trying to want to get to that next level. And when people have a big challenge in front of them, they start feeling more anxious, more feel, uh, fearful and more scared. So what I do in those situations is help people control their emotions, become more confident, overcome their interview fears and phobias, and to be successful in that recruitment process. Excellent. And so how did you come to find this as your as your purpose and your passion? As you mentioned in the intro, when I left school, I left with no qualifications. I see myself as a dyslexic loser. That was my mindset leaving school. Wow. I struggled to read, I struggled to write. I, I had a terrible lisp as well, so I couldn't talk. Which is really funny now because as a coach, you talk for a living and as an author, you obviously have to read and write. Uh, so I feel I have traveled uh, a long way, but I left school with no qualifications and I started working in like low skill positions. My first job, by the way, was one pound an hour. So that's like uh, one and a half dollars per hour. Yeah, that's, that's crazy, next to nothing, that. right? Next to nothing before minimum wage came in. Yeah. So I was working these low skill jobs, but I knew I had a passion for helping people. That's what I that's what I always had inside me. I was the sort of child where the friends would come and tell them all the problems and I would just sit there and listen. Probably could he had a list, but I didn't want to talk to so embarrass myself. I just sat there and didn't say anything. So they loved talking to me. Um but I also uh, knew I wanted to do something in the professional setting as well. But I had these limiting beliefs where I was dyslexic, had no qualifications, so there's no way. I can get paid for helping people. So I started to volunteer. I used to volunteer taking disabled adults rock climbing and hiking and work with like youth groups and scout groups just so I could uh, spend my time assisting people. Anyway, back in the workplace, I'm still working in these low skilled jobs, but I'm on, you know, $3 an hour now. <laughs> I'm doing quite well. Right. <laughs> but it also, it's, it's a very low wage. And I get this lucky opportunity. I get a chance to learn how to drive a faultless truck. And on the course, I'm fantastic because 
I'm a kinesthetic learner, so physically being on the truck and driving is something so that hand, helps me yeah, learn. Yeah, hands-on learning. I know that was a lot of dyslexics, that's really instrumental. Yeah, definitely. It's just that kind of way our, our, our brain is wired. So I'm driving around the chicanes, lifting up the pallets, putting them down. I'm like the king of the truck. But my colleagues, because it's quite a nervous experience learning how to drive these big trucks, were really fearful and was crashing into the chicane. They nearly drove over the instructor a couple of times. You know, they, they wasn't doing too well. And the instructor actually said to me, he said, Chris, you're going to pass the faultless truck license. And then they turned out to my colleagues and said, but you're going to fail, which made him even more fearful and more scared. So I went over to him and I taught him this visualization technique that I used to teach the disabled adults when they were afraid to do a little bit of rock climbing. And it's a technique I use now as a hypnotherapist, actually, but I didn't realize how powerful okay. it was at the time. So anyway, they get onto the truck and they're brilliant. They get really confident. They drive on the chicane, they lift up the pallet, pull it down, and they pass the test. Fantastic. Anyway, 12 months later, the person who taught me to drive to Fortnite truck comes back to see me in my workplace and says, Chris, do you remember who I am? I was like, yeah, you're the guy who taught me to drive to Fortnite truck. He goes, no, I'm the managing director of the organization. The only reason oh I was there gosh. that day, I know, I couldn't believe it either. He said, the only reason I was there that day is because the instructor was ill. So I just came down and, and delivered the training session. But I always remember when you had that nervous colleague and you gave the magic whisper. This is what we call it, that you you was the magic whisperer and you said something to her and they became really confident and could drive the truck. We talk about you in each of our monthly team meetings. Anyway, I've come down here today because we see something special in you. We want to offer you the opportunity to become a thoughtless truck instructor. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. And then he goes, it costs £3,000. So I was like, yeah, I was like, this is a coin. Like, I pay £3,000. There's not a job at the end of it. You know, I'm out of pocket, but I'm on like $3 an hour. So I don't have £3,000. I barely have $30 in my, in my bank account. And, you know, I'm really poor. I'm eating beans and toast for tea. That's how poor I am. And he could see that in my face and said, no, no, no. We're going to pay for that course for you. We're going to mentor you. We're going to train you. We're going to support you. Uh, and you're going to get a massive salary increase as well. So for me, it was, I was passionate about helping people. I didn't think I could do it in the professional setting. So I volunteered, learned loads of skills, volunteering. I started reading some books around helping people as well at that time. But then I seen this opportunity and I just took it. And I think that's what we need to do. When you get opportunities, take them. We're so scared of the unknown. We're so scared of taking a risk. But sometimes you just have to go for it to create success. No, I agree. I agree. Um, so it's sort of pivoting to the part of your expertise that I think that your book speaks about and that will resonate with the people listening to this podcast. I want to talk, jump in and talk about interviewing. Um, because, you know, I know you speak a lot on that. Can you sort of talk, share with us, how has interviewing changed in the past 10 years or so? I feel like there's been a lot of, there's big, some big evolutions thanks to technology. There's been massive evolution. So the first thing from the employer's point of view, most employers now use a structured job interview because the research and evidence shows that a structured job interview can help the employers better the job performance of each applicant. So employers are using this structured-based um, interview process. But what they're finding now is because of technology, loads of people are applying for jobs and they need to be able to shift down the uh, unsuitable applicants so about 10 years ago, you used to apply for a job, about 20, 30 other people used to do a handwritten application, apply for the same position, and then five or six people got interviewed. These days, with uh, recruiters, with online CVs, with LinkedIn, and you know people being able to mass 
uh, upload applications, about 2,000 people are applying for uh, advertised jobs. Some organizations are getting 20,000 people, like Google and stuff, Microsoft get 20,000 people. It's absolutely crazy. The stats say the average is 250. So what's happening now with the interview process is they're using AI to do uh, interviews. And this is the future of recruitment processes. So you'll go onto a website on a lot of time uh, and then a random question will come up uh, and there'll be three questions on average and you'll read the question and then you'll have to deliver your answer to camera for one to two minutes. And then the robots will then scan uh, using an audio package or scan your answers or pick out the turns. Uh, you can even they can even pick up on tonality shifts and stuff like that now. But they'll pick up out all these criteria and, re- and reference that against the job criteria to see if you're suitable. And then if you are suitable, humans at the end of the recruitment process will be the people interviewing you. So that sounds quite crazy, but it's been happening for years already. We get robots uh, scanning CVs and resumes and application forms all the time. Robots will write and create job adverts as well. So this is kind of like the next evolution. But then you hear like Facebook talking about the uh, metaverse, don't you, quite a lot. So the future job interviews could be, uh, you know, uh, VR job interviews where you do it from your home, but you're in the metaverse, in an office with the employer having some sort of online virtual job interview. But we're not too sure where that's going to go yet. But you're right, the AI piece, um, I know here in the States, financial services companies have been using that a lot for their um, for their new grads. Uh, my son just graduated from college and all of his interviews with the big banks were all that one-way AI interviewing. Um, yeah. The good thing was that he knew the questions ahead of time, so it gave you preparation, but it was unnerving to show emotion and stare into a screen without anyone on the other end giving you feedback. Yeah, it's really hard and it definitely increases uh, the anxiety. It's that interesting that he got given the questions before the interview because a lot of employers are starting to avoid that. Again, the research yeah, shows... He did. They were mostly with higher view. And so, yeah, he did have a lot of the questions ahead of time. Okay, yeah. So that helps and create like high strength, uh, high scoring interview answers. A couple of tips though, if you're doing it... Um, to camera. If it's a real person, you can kind of frame the uh, camera so it's like a chest to the top of the head and that allows people to see your facial expressions, your gestures, mm-hmm. as well as like hearing your answers. You can also look directly into the camera lens rather than looking onto the screen, which is what we naturally do. Yeah. And that increases uh, online eye contact. Uh, and then if it's a virtual interview, you're kind of like worried about these robots interviewing you. You don't actually see a robot on the other end. You just, you just see yourself on camera. But a good thing to do is put a picture of someone above the screen. So someone you don't know who, who you're pretending is the interviewer and pretend to talk to that picture of that someone. And that makes it feel a little bit more real, which helps you to become a bit more natural in the job interview. No, I think that's a great idea. Um how now you often speak about unconscious interview bias and how employers' behaviors affect the applicant job seeker. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on how that plays out in general, but also if that's a factor with the um, with the AI interviews. So unconscious bias is a massive factor with AI bots because. AI bots make decisions based on human data and humans have lots of unconscious bias. So they've done this before prior to uh, using bots in in job interviews where they try to uh, get robots to analyze information from people in court cases uh, to see if they're likely to... uh, uh, to commit, if they're like to have committed the crime or not. 
And what they found is that uh, the, the robots were more likely to uh, give a black person a longer sentence than a white person because it's all based on human uh, data and humans uh, uh, in the past have been uh, racist. So wow. yeah. it's all about the data that's fed to the robots that uh, changes the outcome to it. But in the job interview, we unconscious bias plays a massive part. As soon as the employer comes downstairs to meet the applicant in reception, they, in that instantaneous moment, it's not five seconds or 10 seconds, it's like milliseconds, they make an opinion about that person based on numbers of factors. So their gender, their ethnicity, their size, their perceived age, their tonality, their handshake, what that person's wearing, even the posture and body language of the applicant in front of them. All these bits of data goes into the head, into a filter, and they go, I like that person or I don't like that person. That's kind of like the first uh, initial uh, filter, an unconscious uh, bias. It also starts like prior to the job interview. You get the halo and horns effect. So the halo effect is when, I don't know, an internal manager says um, to another manager who's recruiting for internal candidates for a promotional position, they go, oh, Chris is uh, applying for that job interview. I don't know why he's applying for it. It's not, it doesn't seem suitable for me for that role. That then creates uh, the horns effects a negative opinion of that person before they actually meet them. Or an employer going onto your social media feed and seeing it filled with like sex-related information, industry knowledge, um, comments, and you know all this like positive stuff uh, could potentially create the halo effect where they go, God, this person seems ideal for the role. Um, and then they've got a positive filter before actually meeting a person on the recruitment day. So, so the first unconscious bias is like the first filter. What? You said halo and something else? Halo and horns. So halo is a, is a good opinion about someone and the horns, the devil's horns, uh, oh. is a negative negative opinion about someone. And that happens before the person has even met you face-to-face, screen-to-screen. And then yeah. when that face-to-face, screen-to-screen happens, the judgments and opinions are in, literally instantaneous. Yeah, so so it's like instantaneous. They did an experiment in America actually where they sent off hundreds of applications to hundreds of different employers, but it's attached to it uh, a picture of either an obese person or an average weight person, whatever an average weight person is. Uh, so the same application went off this, with one of these two photographs. And uh, the conclusion was that um, the obese person was seen as lazy by the employers and was less likely to get an interview offer uh, based off the photograph because the application form was the same as the average weight person. And so this, I mean, people, everyone walks in with their own baggage, right? And so what what is, what can a job, is there anything a job seeker can do? Obviously they can, they can help with the halo effect by trying to get people to share positive opinions of them beforehand, have, make sure their social media profiles look great, but you can't change lots of those other things about you. Um, Yeah. It's really interesting as well because you have this unconscious bias and then that changes the interviewer's behavior, which then um, subtly and subconsciously changes how the applicant behaves in the interview as well. So it's like, I don't think you're going to be very good for this role. So I, I change my behavior at the subconscious level. You start acting you know, different to what you would do if I was being positive and supportive. So now I go, oh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I knew you was going to be rubbish. And now you're, you're, now oh, you're acting word. rubbish. But okay. you can definitely break this down. If you've got, you know, a sexist, racist or ageist interview, it's very hard to win those people over because they just don't like a certain group for a certain reason. But the interview is a logical, analytical process. The employer really just wants to hire the best person who's going to fit into the 
team, the culture, and the person who can get the best performance uh, out of that role. So they really want someone to be successful. They're not trying to trip people up. The, in, the applicant then needs to think about their interview identity. So your interview identity is your perceived level of knowledge and experience and your level of confidence in that interview. And to get a strong interview identity, you need to be communicating your competencies confidently. So the employer thinks, oh, I'm not too sure if you're suitable because of unconscious bias. They ask you the first opening question, tell me about your experience. Uh, if you talk about your experience in such a way where the employer's like, wow, God, you know, I didn't, didn't realize you got this unique selling point. You've been in the industry for 10 years. You've got this great qualification and you, you're talking about these skills, um, qualities and experience in such a way that you're inspiring me. Did that, bec- that then becomes the new filter because our mind's laser. We make snap decisions, but those snap decisions can be influenced by how that person acts in a given moment. Okay. So in order to build a strong interview profile, you have to be able to communicate your competencies strongly. Are there, is there any other, um, what other advice do you have to sort of strengthen your profile going in to, you know, to try to get those people that are really are looking for the best candidates. They're not looking to, you're not dealing with someone who's ages, sexist, that kind of thing. Yeah, de- yeah, definitely. So uh, things that make high scoring in your answer. So, uh, and again, that interview identity, by the way, you need to do that early on in the interview because it just becomes the filter. We get dead right. lazy. So if we don't think you're good, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to encourage you. I'm not going to write down all the answers. I think you're good. I'm going to ask you additional questions. Or I'm going to have strong eye contact. I'm going to be nodding as you're talking to really encourage you. Um, so that happens at the beginning. Infinity bias as well is a great way to get employers on your side. So what you can do is check employers on LinkedIn, on social media, find anything that you have in common with that person. So you either went to the same school, got a similar sounding surname, um, you've, you've got the okay. same interests and hobbies. If you randomly mention that as you're walking upstairs to the interview room and, and, and bring it into a natural conversation, that person will then like you more because you've got something in common with them. This is okay. where the whole old school tie comes in. Oh, I mm-hmm. see you went, you went to that university. So did I. And then you have an infinity right. bias. So that's a so great way. To find way. some common ground. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's, it's a very little simple thing, but it's, uh, it's very powerful as well. Okay. Also, talking about sector-related theories and models uh, gets, gets the perception of you being a more suitable and skilled applicant. So do you know that dead common ask the interview question, like, tell me how you manage your time. And everyone goes, well, I put things in my calendar. I have a to-do list that I tick off, blah, 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 blah. And it's kind of like a basic, simple answer. But if you talk about like the time management uh, matrix theory and describe what that is, it makes you sound more professional, more of an authority on that subject because you're referencing um, academic models and theories. And it's a great way to be seen as a powerful person by knowing a couple of different theories and models related to your section and embedding them into your interview answers. Interesting. Okay. So speak to speak to the process that you create to do X, Y, and Z or the theoretic, theoretics, the theories behind it. Yeah, definitely. Because then that's like a logical answer. And you can mix that up as well. You can sort of explain the logic of the theory or the model. And then you can okay. give a real life example. So you're kind of saying the same thing twice. Here's the theory model. Now here's me doing that in a previous job role. So you're saying the same thing twice, ticking the criteria twice, but you're seeing more of an authority because one, your long, your, your answer is a lot longer. And the research shows that the more words per answer often relates in more job offers. Uh, you often vary your language when you're talking about models and real life experience. Uh, and, and when you often talk about real life experiences, your tonality and volume in your voice often change. 
And again, the research say that the longer answers, the more varied language, the emotive words and a change in volume and tonality really engages the employer to get them to listen to you more intently, which allows them to score you high on your scorecard. Okay. Um, how, how do you advise job seekers to prepare for um, you know, different parts of the interview process? So for instance, the phone screen is sort of the first the first screen that someone will do, the HR person will do before passing you on to the next round. Is there advice that you recommend for that that might be different than advice you might share with someone preparing for that next level, that in-person or Zoom interview? Yeah, so the telephone interview uh, is a good... My, my research has always shown that they, they're doing less telephone interviews now, aren't they? More, uh, like you said, like Zoom interviews as well. But the telephone interview is still uh, a common one. What what really trips people up is to get anxious before a job interview. Then uh, when you're anxious, your short-term memory just disappears because you end up going into fight and flight mode. So your short-term memory just like disappears. So you can't answer questions uh, as uh, as detailed as you would if you were feeling calm and confident. But the great thing about a telephone interview is... You can have things in front of you to use a prompt. Now, you never want to write down a full interview answer because people can tell that you're just reading from a script and it doesn't sound, sounds a little bit robotic and you don't get that that, uh, rapport going with the employer. But if you have like a couple of prompts, like opening a couple of actions that you've done and then like the outcome for a particular situation, you can use that in front of you. It's so easy to predict uh, the job interview questions from most job roles that you can prepare your answers. In fact, we talk about the three rules of a successful job interview. The first one is identifying the job criteria so you know what to talk about. The second one is being a self-promoter, especially in England. I don't know about America, but in England, we're so reserved. We hate saying how great we are uh, where you need to in a job interview. It's kind of expected, isn't it? And then the third one, yeah. the third rule for a successful job interview is communicate with confidence. The second one is to be okay um, speaking about yourself. Is that correct? Or am I, did I miss that? Yeah, well, be, well being a self-promoter. So one of the problems people do is, uh, and again, it's often due to a bit of anxiety this, is to get asked an interview question. And they'll just talk about like the normal business as usual activities that everyone you know in the industry does. Where what you want to be doing is talking about those uh, situations and events where you stood out, where you made a difference, where your okay. actions, your advice, your experience was the stuff that driven that project or that uh, goal forward. Um, so you want to be talking about the, the specific actions that you took that made a difference in the organization. Okay. So, so being able to communicate how your actions impacted yeah, and just and okay. constantly as well being positive. So when they look at the research between um, high confident and low confident job applicants, what they found is uh, time and time again, if you got a low level of self esteem in the job interview, you'll self disclose weaknesses uh, without the employer prompting yeah. you. So as an example, uh, I've had this when I do interview coaching. I'll say to someone, uh, "Tell me about a success." You know, like coming like success job interview question, and they'll go, "Oh, um, well, I didn't do that well on that other project," and they kind of talking to themselves but out loud yeah. self-disclosing weaknesses and it's like no 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 you high confident people don't do that they just talk about how great and how wonderful and how good they are that makes perfect sense so for people that you know when you are not on the phone in, in the phone interview and you don't you can't have prompts in front of you what 
advice do you have to sort of keep that confidence up when you are in person or online? What you need to remember every single time you go to a job interview is most interviewers are just as nervous as you are. In actual fact, if you're not being interviewed by a HR recruiting team and you're just being interviewed by your potential line manager, it's unlikely that that person's been through intensive interview training. So they're often dead nervous. They're a little bit anxious themselves. And I think just knowing that uh, allows you to feel a little you're bit right. more You're right. Most people are not experts in interviewing. And, and and they just they sit there. You can see it. So like once once you start recognizing the traits, you can see it. You know they got they're looking down all the time. They're pulling invisible cotton out the shirts and uh, rubbing themselves, itching their arms and the legs. It's just a sign of of nervousness. So a great thing to do is 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 create a conversation. So what often happens is the employee asks a question and then the applicant will just answer it straight away. But you don't want to do that. You want to ask. Um, follow-up interview questions. So as an example, if the employee says, uh, we'll use the success one again. If the employee says, tell me time that you've been successful, Jefflin can say, would you like me to tell you about a, a successful time in work or a successful time out of work? And what that does is, one, the employee's got to answer that question and then they normally go, oh, uh, well, uh, oh, it doesn't really matter. Uh, maybe work it. No, it's up to you. So they're kind of like, because they're not expecting uh, a, a comeback question. But then that allows you, the applicant, to sit there and think for two or three seconds, right, what's a really good answer? What, you know, I've been preparing for this interview, or we, which example should I use for this situation? It just gives you a little bit of time and creates a bit of a conversation. Excellent. No, I think that's such good advice. Um, and you can prepare a lot of your follow-up questions sort of ahead of time and try to weave them in, right, based on the questions that you're getting asked. Yeah, definitely. Um, people always say, what questions are they asked at the end of the interview? Ask questions like throughout the interview. If they're talking about the company culture, ask questions about that because the interview is a, t- it is a two-way process. I know it's like an old thing that all interview coaches say. It's a two-way process, but it really is. You should be looking at that organization and thinking, you know, is this organization right for me? What's the culture of the company? What's the management and leadership styles? What's their vision and objectives? What are the values? Because... There's so many jobs out there these days. We can work on a global basis now, can't we? Don't have to just work in your own country. And companies as well know that we job hop every three to five years. So right. they're always recruiting and employees really want someone good who's going to stay at their organization. That power balance now is back on you. You know, you, it, Apart from the companies where, you know, I think it's in Czech Republic, you tend to have one job for like, you know, 20, 30, 40 years like we used to many years ago in the UK. But but in, in America, in England, in a lot of Europe, we job hop every three to five years. So employers okay. are desperate to get someone good and keep them. So the power's on your side. And do you feel like that very first phone screen is an acceptable time to start asking questions to judge if the role is right for you? Or do you feel like that should, you know, get past the first screen and then start diving in. So with the first screen, they often ask you like two or three questions just to see if you kind of got the skills and experience for that job board and and then decide. And often it's uh, different people who interview you throughout those three or four uh, recruitment processes. Amazon do this for their leaders at positions. They have often six interview rounds and it's different people uh, at each individual round where smaller organizations might have just, you know, the HR team doing a couple uh, of interviews. 
But I would recommend always asking questions because a question creates a conversation and a conversation creates rapport with you and that interviewer. And then when you go to the second round, if it's a different person, you can ask them similar questions that you asked the first person because, you know, it's, it's not kind of like recorded in detail uh, uh, That's right. on the screen. Okay. All right. And it's really about likability. This part. This is where the like the confidence, the whole confidence part of the, the interview identity is all about like rapport, about likability. If I like someone a little bit more, I might score them just a little bit higher, or encourage them to talk a little bit more so they get scored a little bit higher. And you'll often find, you know, when you get a job, uh, that you got one more point than the person next to you. So you'll get a job and they'll say, oh God, it's a really, it's a really strong round of applications. You know, we, did, we was very unsure about the last couple of person, but you just made it. And what they're kind of saying there is you've got one more point than the person behind you. That's, That's right. It gives you that, it that competitive edge, right? Yeah, it's a competitive edge. So sometimes just smiling a little bit more, a longer answer, stating a model or using the infinity bias technique. Sometimes these, this little thing just gets you that one extra point, which is enough to get that new job with a $10,000 pay rise. I love that. I love that. Um, want to sort of shift gears and ask you about what people should be wearing. Um, we keep reading that gone are the days where everyone needs to wear a coat, you know, a jacket and a tie or the female equivalent. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Especially now that we have moved to Zoom interviews. What, what do you recommend people? How should people dress? They should definitely wear trousers. People always say this thing about you can just wear a shirt and a tie, but no trousers. But it's been so many times when people are still up, still on camera, and they're just wearing shorts or, or whatever. The whole outfit thing as well, that you don't need to wear a shirt and tie and stuff. Uh, a lot of bloggers talk about this. So you'll see like the best 10 things to dress, or you can peacock and you can do this, that, and the other. But what it all comes down to is this unconscious bias again. So when the person meets you for the first time, they make an opinion of you based on everything, including your your outfit. So if yeah. you generalize that you have to wear like a you know a suit and a shirt or a smart dress or whatever, you, you're kind of in a safe bet there because people perceive that as a professional outfit. So you get like a you know a positive unconscious bias. There's a TV program in the UK called Dragons Den. In America, it's called the Shark Tank. Have you, have you seen oh, yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, uh, Dragon's Den, uh, I think it started in the UK. There's this uh, you know, billionaire entrepreneur called uh, Peter. And he always talks about uh, what people wear. And he says, I can't believe people come to pitch to me wearing t-shirts and jeans. As soon as they walk in, I, I have a negative opinion about them uh, straight away because they've not made an effort for their pitching uh, interview. And, it's, and he only ever um, uh, gives money to the people who don't wear suits if they've got you know, a high level of knowledge about their, their expertise or their product that they're selling. And it's the same with a job interview. You kind of mm. have... You kind of have to look smart to create that first impression unless the employer is an employer that doesn't really care too much about that outfit. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that Peter Jones works with is um, Naked Smoothies, I think it's called, in, in Britain and I think they're in the U- US as well. And their culture and their company is all about wearing T-shirts, being creative, being innovative, you know, a very laid-back attitude. Right. So that you interviewer... Is, to understand the, the, the corporate culture. Yeah, that's it. So research goes a long way. But still, you know, if, if that was me going for the interview, I'd still be tempted to at least be smart casual because it does create that first impression. It, we, we see you and, and we instantly have an opinion made about you. So sort of like one step above how they dress. Yeah, I would. And, and the other thing as well, if 
if you're kind of thinking, well, I want to do the casual thing because it's, you know, a research company, it's very casual. Even in the, in the letter, they said you don't need to wear a suit or shirt, you can come in a t shirt or whatever. It's to kind of state that out. Um, you also want to wear like a smart t you know, you, you mm-hmm. want it kind of to be uh, smart or well fitted. But what's really important that people don't really talk about though is your posture, your body oh. language. Now that creates the impression. Um, is you're stood with your head held, your shoulders back, your kind of chest out a little bit, like confident and charismatic people do. If you've got your chin held up a little, a little bit high and your eye contact's really strong, you're going to create a charismatic impression on that person because we find confident people attractive. And when we find someone attractive, we see them as a better employee. Interesting. So chin up, eye contact, shoulders back. Yeah, and uh, and well-fitted clothes uh, often. There's loads of research into a theory called what is beautiful is good. And this is all around if you find someone attractive. And like I said, confidence equals uh, attraction for most people. You, if you find someone attractive, you're going to think they're more intelligent. You're going to think they're more charming. You're going to think they're going to be more suitable uh, for the team uh, that you're involved in. Just through attractiveness. And attractiveness is in the eye of the beholder as well, isn't it? Right. So it's all of the, just these little things contribute to improving someone's unconscious bias of you. Yeah, definitely. And like I said before, once, once that likability factor from the unconscious bias um, happens, which is just at the subconscious level, I will then sub, sub, um, at, a, at a subconscious level encourage or discourage you to give strong or weak interview answers. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. Um, so. I'd like to ask you about a question that I get all the time because it's tricky um, about money um, and you know how to when to answer the salary question, when not to. Um, what is your take on when is the appropriate time to start talking money from an, from a job seeker's perspective, and how do you advise job seekers to to answer that question? So there's three types of jobs when you think about salary. One, like the set salary. So if you work for somewhere like, I don't know, McDonald's or a call center or something like that, you're probably going to be on a set salary wage and there's no negotiable in that. The middle one is where you're um, on an increase in salary. So you're on a band, so you get uh, X amount up to X amount and you, you can negotiate where you're going to start on that salary band. Uh, in between it. And then each year you get a pay rise until you reach the, the top of that salary band. Right. And then the third one, which is for like, you know, high pay positions is where you can negotiate your salary uh, during that interview process. Generally speaking, for the high pay positions, you're going to have at least three job interviews. Um, and normally it's in the last couple of job interviews where you start discussing salaries and terms and that sort of stuff. What you always, always want to do when you're negotiating a salary is be the person to first set the salary expectation because that works as a baseline. So as an example, let's say um, the salary expectations for a certain job role is between 50 uh, and 70,000 pounds. If the employer goes in and says, right, we're going to uh, offer you 55, you as the applicant will then negotiate based on that baseline figure on that 55. So you might go, okay, 55, so... I'll go, uh, I'll go 65 and you negotiate and you end up at 60. But if you set the salary baseline, so you say, okay, it's 70,000, the employer then uses your reference as a baseline. So they might go 70, okay, 60, and you negotiate and end on 65. So you're making like 10 grand more just by being a person who, who negotiates that first salary offer. Interesting. 
So you recommend the job seeker set the basis for that initial discussion? Yeah, definitely. So you normally get, it's normally, with a lot of companies, it's normally quite clear when they're going to negotiate the salary. Or maybe it just comes up in the interview. So the interviewer says, you know, you're doing really well. We're down to the last two people. We want to, we want to talk salaries. And you can say, great, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. What, uh, with my knowledge, my experience, the added value I can bring to your company, and then mention a couple of things that you talked to about the interview. I can do this, that, and the other to help you achieve your goals or make loads of profit, blah, 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 blah. I know my salary, my, my worth is, and then you state that initial figure because unless they've got an, a, a, a very specific figure in mind, they'll negotiate based off your baseline figure. Okay. So I'm hearing you say that you need to have whatever you offer out there needs to be grounded in an understanding of what you're worth, what the market bears. Like you need to do your homework. You can't just throw out some crazy number. Yeah, because if, if like the average is 50,000, you're like, I want 100,000 of a life. It's just, right. it's just no point. But if it's, it's like, you know, when you go into a shop, uh, and you want to buy some furniture, if that shop has got no prices on it, you've got no idea what that furniture costs. So you go to the salesperson, I'm really interested in this sofa, and they say, okay. And you, and when you say, how much is it? That person can then name any figure. Cause at that moment, you've got no idea what that sofa costs. If they name a really high figure, you will automatically go, There's all the that sofa must be a quality sofa because it's $2,000 as an example, or $3,000, mm-hmm. compared to them saying it's $100. So the value uh, creates worth in our mind. It's, it's a very weird psychological process. It's, it's a bit like, have you ever bought, do you buy wine? Do you drink wine at all? I do. Yes. Yeah. So Pretty imagine you got I got like, to go to Napa. <laughs> so mm-hmm. imagine then like you've got like a real special day coming up, a birthday, an anniversary, something like that. And there's three bottles of wine. So one's uh, $7, one's $10 and one's $12. Um, what what normally happens is most people will go for the middle the the middle product because the expensive one might be a little bit too expensive. The cheaper one is seen to be a cheap drink, but the middle one is you know a good buy. But if there's a fourth bottle, so the fourth bottle is fourteen dollars, so two dollars more than the last most expensive one. Most people will buy the third most expensive bottle. So the way money's set, the way salaries are set changes the way we think in our mind. And it's a very important lesson to learn. So always state your worth and then start the salary negotiations by stating the figure that you want and make it, make it a little bit higher um, uh, than the, the, the average in the industry. No, I totally agree with that. Um, I want to ask you about... Uh, you, know, you, sorry, you Let me back up. You Earlier in our discussion, we talked about the, va- the power of asking questions in terms of um, promoting a conversation and um, increasing your likability. Uh, and I've often heard people say that they always recommend you have a couple of powerful questions on hand to close out an interview, sort of to leave a good impression in their mind. Um, are there is there a favorite question or two that you find is you know, p- particularly effective or powerful, or does it really just depend on how the conversation is going? I would definitely be asking questions to uncover what the culture of the company is like to make sure you're happy to be there. So I might say, you know, uh, what makes you work at this organization? Um, uh, can you tell me a little bit about the company ca- culture? Out of the five values that you, you state, what's the most important for you as an organization? So I get a little bit of insight into the company because that helps me decide if I want to work there or not. But to help then to see you as a more suitable applicant, 
you can say something along the line. So um, now I told you about my skills and my experience and the sort of added value you can bring to the organization. Um, if you offered me the job, what would you see me doing in the next three to six months? And what that makes them do is to positively think about you in their organization being successful. So it kind of embeds that you're working in their organization and being so, successful. So the question is, how would you see me... Yeah, so how would you, uh, or, or like, what would you see me doing in the first three months, or how can you okay. see me working within the team? Uh, but state it in terms of um, the skills and qualities that you discussed in the interview, and then future pace it. How, what would you, what would you have me doing? How would you see me working with the team? Uh, what projects do you think uh, I'd be able to work on? That that last one as well, like what, especially if you're working uh, in a company that's got different departments and projects, and they're recruiting quite a lot of people. Saying uh, what department or projects would would best suit my skill set and my experiences gets them to compare your skill set and experiences okay. across the different departments. I like that. So it's making them visualize you in the in yeah. the role. Yeah, and the reason why it's so important that visualization is because what you see, you feel. So when you see someone or imagine that person, you know, working successfully in your team, you feel a quite a positive thing about them, don't you? You're kind of drawn to that person compared to someone who, who, who your visualization as a negative. And this is why using confident, uh, emotive language is dead powerful in job interviews because the more emotive and um, confident you are in that job interview, the more the warm to you. So the visualization you are all the time, but in a positive way. Interesting. So. What, um, and I'm sure you have many, but let's say someone comes to you at a party and says, I'm going to go to an interview. I have so much anxiety. What's, what one tip do you have for me to help calm my nerves? What would you say? You've already given a lot, but do you have one that's just your favorite? Yeah, so my favorite technique is a, is a visualization technique. So it's a real nice link, actually. It's like we planned it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what often happens is what you see, you feel. So if you're fearful of job interviews, you often imagine yourself being fearful, anxious, worried, getting the questions wrong. You play this negative film out in your mind. So you feel terrible. And then that kind of loops back. So what you see, you feel. And what you feel, you, you start visualizing. If you get that thought, Push it outside your head, and you can actually try it now, uh, Virginia. Like, imagine something you're really scared of. Push it outside your mind so you can see the edges of, of that picture. If it's a film, pause it and then drain the color out of it so it becomes a still black and white photo. And then put that still black and white photo into like a big old frame that you see, like in, a, in a, an old fashioned art gallery. And then push that frame black and white picture further away, and then further away and further away so it's the size of a postcard. It's the size of a stamp and it's the size of a dot on the horizon. And the more you push that thought away, the less the negative impact will, uh, will, you'll feel in your stomach. So move the negative thought away and you'll feel less you're negative. You're picturing it, your hip pause, remove the color. Yeah, make it uh, put, put, put it in a frame and then push it away, push it and push it and push it away. So I'll do and this. You do um, that. You do that. As each sort of anxious moment comes into your into your mind, yeah. So this is a technique I use when I do my phobia removals with with, um, with my hypnotherapy clients. So I do uh, like a little bit of rhythmic breathing to get them into a calm state, get them to imagine the thing they, they dislike, and then I do that whole technique, push it further and further away. Then I get them to do some breathing at the end of it, and, right. and that and when I, when I repeat that a couple of times, it gets rid of their phobias. But in a job interview, because we all get a little bit anxious because you know it's something we don't do every single yeah. day. 
if you if you in the if you're in the uh, chair and you get a little bit nervous, just you'll go like, "What am I thinking of? Oh, I'm thinking that I'm going to mess up." So get that thought, push it in front of you, drain the color, pause it, and push it further away. You can do that like in the instant and just repeat it three or four times, and then you'll find that that feeling of fear starts reducing inside of you. Interesting. Oh, how fascinating. Well, Chris, I have shared on the bio that I'm going to put along with this podcast. I've got your Christopher-Delaney.com website, employmentking.com, and then also a link to your book on Amazon. What is your interview identity? Um, what You have two jobs going on and you've published a book. What is the, What do you anticipate? What are you excited to share with us for, or what are you excited for, for the uh, upcoming year? So one of the things I did before this book is I wrote a play for the first time. I wrote and directed a play at a, a local fringe festival uh, that I put on. And I was I really enjoyed that whole like ex- new experience of doing that. And I love the theatre as well. So I think I might start my second play maybe and see, see how that goes. Wow. So nothing to do with job interviews, but, uh, you know, it's a creative process. Oh, goodness. That sounds exciting. So if people want to learn more about you... Um, as, as I said, I've listed your website and a link to your book. Are there any other links or other ways that people can connect with you? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn quite a lot. So people send me lots of direct messages and I answer people's questions Great. on there. Uh, so you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. And um, just what, what an eye-opening insight into how your, you know, the little details that you can control and really improve your confidence and then and increase your likability in in nanoseconds it seems like yeah and it's all based off research as well so sometimes you kind of you know especially like if you were blogging as an example you might kind of just give some advice in your own opinions but everything i talked about today has come from academic research uh, so it's kind of been proven to just give you that edge in the job interview oh i love that well chris thank you so much Brilliant. I really enjoyed chatting to you as well. It's been really fun. Thank you. You've been listening to The Resume Storyteller with Virginia Franco. To learn more about storytelling strategies to catch the eye of today's online CM hiring and decision makers, please visit www.virginiafrancoresumes.com.